Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to open your word and to look at what you have us to learn and ask us to guide and lead us. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Acts chapter 17. We're going to be starting at verse 22 and we want to just lay the foundation because we are going to be starting at Paul's message to the Athenians. Remember that uh, Paul had been in Athens. He went up to the Areocalypse. And the Athenians had told us in verse 21, love to debate, love new things. And uh, one of the things about this speech is if you read commentaries and you listen to a lot of pastors, they will tell you that this is an example of Paul not being successful in his message. And I'm going to say that I think he was very successful in this message because he was talking to the elite of the elite who like to argue. To win anybody in that circumstance... (laughs) would be a big deal. Uh, And this event would be something akin to going to Harvard or or any of these big name schools and successfully getting people to follow you and and listen to you. So this is one of the things when we look at this, this statement, you know, I disagree with many of the commentators that say this was a losing, you know, bad example of how to preach. Uh, I think it, I think he did very well in what he did. Acts 17. And so I just wanted to lay that foundation on here because uh, you know if you listen to different people, you hear them all the time tell you, don't don't preach like this. Uh, but so here we go, verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, "You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you were too superstitious, for I was." As I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that hath made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with man's hands, though, as though he needed anything, seeing he gives all life and breath and all, and all things." And hath made of one blood all nations of men, and lo, dwell, and to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of our own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold or silver or stone, graven by art or man's device. The times of the ignorance God winked at this, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. Thereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him up from the dead. So this is his message to the Greeks. All right. And we're going to kind of take this apart a little bit and see what he, what he has actually said. It starts out that he stood in the midst of Mars Hills. Before that, they called it the Areopagus, the, the meeting place for the Athenians uh, where they debated things. And the Areopagus goes all the way back to Aristotle and Socrates. 
and that is where they taught. It's where they debated the, the wise things, and people tried to understand truth. And you know, so many things as we look at this message is Paul was preaching to a type of people that we preach to today all the time. All right, people who are are so intelligent they don't believe in different different things, and they're looking for truth. The only problem is they don't believe in truth, and neither did they. They they understood that there was a truth, but they didn't want to accept that there was a truth giver. And these are the type of people Paul's talking to here on Mars Hill. And so his first thing he says to them as he goes up there, he says, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. And this word, I'm sad to say that superstitious is not really a good definition and a good translation. It should be religious. He was not accusing them and, and making, you know, you don't start out your, your debate by, by attacking your people. And this word really should have been translated religious. Uh, it's not, but superstitious is one of those words that has kind of changed over the years as well. Uh, so, but he's saying you're religious. And in this case, he is kind of saying you're too religious because, you know, and he's going to tell them why he thinks they're too religious as he's going up the hill. Uh, do you want to say? No. Oh, okay. You had a look. You had a look on your... <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so he's saying, you are all very religious. Uh, and then he goes on to say, as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Now on Mars Hill, back then and even to this day, they have the, the ruins of them. They had altars to just about every God in the Greek, <laughs> Greek empire <laughs> on that hill. And one of the things, and even in Athens, all over the town, they had altars. And we've talked about this. Back in that day, you had altars to just about every god. And, you know, we've talked about how when you left your home, you would pray to your god of your home, and then you'd pray to the god of the travel, the god of the road, the god of the fields, the, the god of the forest, the, you know. And you, you wanted to pray to all these gods as you went down. So to get a small trip was a major deal because along with your prayers had to be some kind of small sacrifice, usually a couple grains of, of flour or something, but you had to make sacrifices to all these gods so they would listen to you. And Paul's going up the hill and he's going, you know, what a pain in the neck this would have been to, the, you know, to anybody traveling up this hill because you're going to worship to all these gods, cover all your bases. You know, we don't really understand how great monotheism is <laughs> to have one god. You know, and you think about this, if you, read, if you remember in the book of, of Joshua, how all the enemies of God said, well, our, you know, they beat the God of the mountains, but we got the God of the valley, so our God, our God will be stronger than them because they got a God of the mountains, you know, when they were talking about Israel. And that's really how things happen. And it's kind of amazing that every time Israel beat somebody throughout the Old Testament, oftentimes they'd start worshiping the God that they had beat. You know, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, your God just defeated the other God, so you're going to worship the God that got defeated does not make a lot of sense. But this is the world that they lived in. And you know, sad to say, we've got polytheism kicking back up in our country, in our world. And you know, it's an amazing thing as we deal with people. Paul had a real tough time because he had to convince people who God was. 
I agree because this is what Paul did and people look at this they compare Paul's message here to Peter's message on Pentecost and Peter leads 3,000 people to the Lord on well makes message that brings 3,000 people to the Lord and they go well see he was so successful Paul just got a handful of people well Peter was talking to people who already understood the, who God was and how to come to God and you know he had more of like even America used to be back in the 60s and 70s and even to the 80s People knew who God was, and they were already geared to it. Our world today is more like what Paul was preaching to, and I agree. And I've said this over and over. How do we witness to people? We give them the simplicity of the gospel, whether they want to accept it or not. We give them the simplicity of the gospel, and if it touches their heart, it touches their heart. And this is what Paul is doing. He's really given the simplicity of the gospel. He's telling them, first off, who is God? And you know, we're coming to a day when we have to tell people who God is. And when they tell you, I believe in God, our first question would be, tell me who God is. You know, or I believe in Jesus. You know, when we're dealing with people who believe in the cults, we need to first off, who is Jesus? You know, and they go, well, he's a good teacher. Well, no, that's not, who we're, that's not who I'm going to talk to you about. Well, he was a good man. Well, yeah, he was good, but he was much more than a man. You know, we have to make sure that they understand that Jesus is the, the one and only Son of God who died on the cross for their sins. And was God, <laughs> you know, and the one and only God, and He was equal, you know, you know, and all these other things. We have to define just as Paul's doing here, and He's telling them, "I saw your devotion." As I was going up here, I saw all your, all your altars, and then He was able to look and said, "But I saw this one to the unknown God." Now this is amazing because they've got they've got altars to everybody. <laughs> And then just to make sure they covered everybody, they go, we're going to put one out here for the unknown. <laughs> that way, in case we forgot anybody, <laughs> we've got one out here that says, you know, you know we, we, we've got them to Athena and, and Mars and, and uh, Neptune and all these people. And they're going, just in case we missed any God out there, <laughs> we've got another one. And Paul says, I'm going to tell you about that one. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about the one you don't know. You think he got their attention, probably? You know, these are the guys, these are smart guys. These are, these are guys that are strong in wisdom. They have studied Aristotle. They have studied uh, uh, 
Socrates. They've looked at all these guys. They are debating new things. Remember in verse 21 it says they spent all day just debating <laughs> new ideas. And Paul goes, I want to tell you about the unknown God. That one over there, the one that you don't know, I want to tell you about. And he starts to give them the history of God and defining who God is. And it says, you know, he says, therefore you ignorantly worship him, I will declare him unto you. I'm going to tell you who he is. I, you know, I know him. And this is quite a statement because this is our strongest testimony as Christians. We know God. And this is why I tell us our, our own testimony is the strongest thing we can use to witness to people. We need to know the word of God and all that, but when we tell people we know God, they might tell us, they might not believe us, but you know one thing is they can't tell us I don't tell me that I don't know God. You know, they might tell me, but they're not going to convince me. <laughs> and this is why it's important, you know, one of the things that we use, and I and I use it a lot, and I've shared it a lot, you know, most people go think that Christianity is a religion, and I tell them, no, it's not religion, it is a relationship with the God of the universe. Because it is what makes it different, because religion is a whole bunch of rules that you follow to please to please the deity. And I'm not following to please the deity because I can't please him enough to go to heaven. So it's a relationship. And I love it that he instituted the relationship. Now, it's not me trying to institute a relationship with him. He did all the work. He came and paid the price. And a matter of fact, he goes, we love him because he first loved us. And he stretched out his hand, and it's all by grace. You know, and this is the beautiful thing. And he says, first off, he defines God in verse 24. He says, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, and that he dwells not in temples made with hands. All right? So his first thing is to define who God is. And he says, it is the God that started everything. All right? So what is he doing in here from the Greek point of view? They have so many gods that didn't start things. All right? None of their gods outside of the God started anything because you had the God of war, you had the God of love, you had the God of peace, you had the God of work, you, you had gods of everything, but you, you know, he's saying, we're not, I've got the God who started everything. <laughs> All right? So he's making them theoretically even greater than Zeus because Zeus started things but didn't, didn't control everything else underneath that. And he's saying, no, I'm going to tell you about the God who started everything and controls everything. And this is a very powerful statement that he's making to them because this is not something they're going to understand. If they're truly following a God in polytheism, you don't have a God who controls everything. And if you get into the Greek and Roman mythologies and even, even the Nors, Nor, Norwegians and every other mythology, their gods all fight each other all the time. There's not an all-powerful god. <laughs> um, and he's coming in and saying, I'm going to tell you about this god. As a matter, matter of fact, I'm going to tell you about this god. He is the powerful god. <laughs> he controls everything. And this is going to be something because remember the very first thing is you're teaching strange truths. <laughs> you're teaching us about a God we don't know. So he goes in and he teaches them about a God they don't know. 
And this is going to be something he has to do. And he says he's made all things, and he doesn't dwell in temples. All right? They, quite interestingly, every place had their temple to their God, and many of the gods had temples everywhere, but they, they really did believe that their God dwelled in those temples. The sad thing is the Jews thought the same way. The Jewish people thought that God dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem, even though the Bible told us that he didn't dwell in the temple. And this was the problem that happened when, when Jesus was walking. The people had elevated the temples to such a high degree that they actually worshipped the temple more than they worshipped God. And we saw it even, even when the, the prophets, back before the first temple was destroyed, you know, how dare you say that God will ever destroy this temple? <laughs> You know, this is, this is where we go. This is where God is. And, you know, I've heard pastors, and I kind of agree with them that they don't like the, the area that we worship God called the sanctuary. You know, the God is there. And I understand what they're saying <laughs> because we as Christians know that God is wherever we're at, you know, and everywhere. You know, we don't, there's nothing special about a place where we go to worship him necessarily other than that's where we think that we meet him. <laughs> but we should be able to meet him everywhere. And this is very important that we don't elevate something to a very high place. And the sanctuary to me would be that he had more God's people, Christians together, and like, I don't know if you do like, but when there's more Christians, you know, in one area, isn't that what they call sanctuary? Um... <laughs> I want to be careful how I answer that. God, Jesus told us where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. So there is power in the meeting of the church. But there's not more of God at that point in time. There's not more of his presence. Uh, but when we're focused on him and we're talking about him, I think there is that feeling that something is good. But we're not basing our life on feelings. <laughs> I think more of it is just we feel that it's there because we're focused on him, you know, with a group of people. Yeah. Um, but, and, and God tells us, forsake not the assembling of yourselves and all, you know, all the more when, you know, as you see the day approaching. So it is important because when we do get together, I do feel God more when, when we're together, we're worshiping him and, and the spirit is being, being lifted up and all of that. And I do feel him better more often in, the assembling of the church. But, it does, but it's not a literal, <laughs> there's not more of God just because we meet there. We sense him more, and I think it gets into our feelings more than, all right. Uh, but he says he dwelled not in temples, you know, and this is the key, and I do agree, church is a special place. I mean, because people have gathered together. We gather together, and we, we hear his word. We, we know each other, and and I agree definitely with the uh, art. You know, when people are seeking God, there's a drawing out that happens. And if you are a teacher, it's wonderful to teach people that are wanting to learn more, and it draws out more. And you know, one of the things I have learned, because there have been times when I've had to teach with nobody in the room because nobody else came, and because we preach and teach on the Internet, I've, on three or four occasions in the last eight years, I actually taught to an empty room. It is very hard to talk to an empty room. You know, it has really made me respect people like J. Vernon McGee and many of these other pastors that sat in their offices 
and taped their messages for broadcast. You know, because it is very difficult when nobody is out there to ask a question or even to see, am I, am I even talking about something that somebody's interested in? And, you know, and, and there is a feeding off of that and it, there's a power that comes from <laughs> that ability. And Paul here is saying, you know, I'm going to tell you about this man. And then, you know, he says, verse 25, neither is worshipped with man's hands as though he needed anything. And this is something that's important because when you're worshiping an idol that can't do anything, everything you're going to do, you have to do for him. And over and over, the prophets would say, you know, you know, you want to, you're praying to your idol, and, and then they would decide that the idol hasn't given them their answer, so they're going to go pray to God, and God basically has to, said, told the prophet, you go back and tell them, go talk to your idol. <laughs> you know, you, you, you've been praying to your idol, don't, don't come to me <laughs> with your needs. And Paul's saying, you know, we're, I'm going to tell you about a God who can take care of things, who doesn't need you to take care of things for him. You glue their arms back on like Dagon, you know, Dagon back in uh, the book of Judges when he fell down on and broken up into pieces. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, and he doesn't need anything. And it says, he gives life and breath. This is the God that we worship. He does not need our help. And this is one of those things. People go, well, why should I give? If God doesn't need me, why should I give? Well, because it's for our benefit, not his. You know, why do we help? Why do we reach out and do things? You know, when we witness, you know, theoretically, God could do it on his own, but he gives us the pleasure of serving him, the honor of serving him. And I love that we get to serve God you know, and talk. You know, and I love it when God takes over. And I've shared with you, and I hope many of you have had this experience, but when you're witnessing and all of a sudden you're realizing you're not talking any, it's your voice, but it's not you talking anymore. And I've had that happen more than once where, you know, I'm going, where did, I, where did all that come from? You know, where did all this information come from? How did, how did I string all that information together in, nice, in such nice way and kind of kick back and go, wow, this is kind of interesting listening to this, <laughs> this, this message. <laughs> but... Paul is telling them, I'm going to give you a God that he gives life. And one of the things that's so important that when we think about God, how big and strong is God? All the idols were just human beings with lots of power. They were jealous. They had hatred. They had problems with each other. They fought with each other. And Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you about the God who has all of life and everything under control. I am so glad that we have just one God and he is the God of gods and, no, and nobody else and if there's any, you know, nothing bothers him, nothing, nothing gets in his way. He's not busy fighting the other gods. <laughs> and this is why I keep bringing up the point, you know, so many people think that Satan is God's equal and that he's an opponent of God and he's a created being. God could unthink him out of existence if he really wanted to. He allows Satan to be a tool to test us, plain and simple. And you, know, and you think about this. Satan has to ask permission <laughs> to do anything. 
He has to go before God and say, can I do? Can I please, can I please test this person? Just as he did with Job. You know, and even then, God pointed Job out to him. And I'm sure God is pointing out many of his children. Have you thought about this one? Have you thought about this one? Have you thought about this? Yeah, sure, but you're protecting them. All right, you can do such and such. Just to prove to us what we believe. It's not proving anything to God because God already knows <laughs> what we're going to do. He already knew what Job was going to do. He already knew how God, uh, Job was going to respond. But Job did not know how Job was going to respond. Just as how many times do we get a test and we go, maybe the week before we said, I'd never fall for something like that. <laughs> and the next thing we know, we're being tested in just what we said we would never fall in. <laughs> well, the problem is there's so many times when even if we don't say it out loud, we go, I got that, God. I, I really know that truth. And then God is going to say, all right, you think you know that truth? Let's see how well you know that truth. As Art was saying this morning, God's, God's teaching us to love. And what's he going to do? He's going to throw somebody that's unlovable at us and say, do you really, truly know what love is? <laughs> As he puts somebody that, at whatever level we're learning love, is unlovable at that level. And then the really good news is you, you pass that test, and he says, okay, you, you, can, you can love that person. Let's give you the next level of unlovable person for you. <laughs> you know, he's teaching you to be forgiving, and he's going to put somebody in there that's going to test your level of forgiveness. God knows us. And, you know, we're told that he, there is no temptation that has come that is, such, that is above our... Uh, that is uncommon to remember God will give us a way of escape, you know. But the test is always designed to take us to our breaking point without him. Always. It's, we can't be broken in Christ... <laughs> but we can be broken in our flesh. And God wants to break our flesh. He wants our flesh broken because he wants us to be totally dependent upon him. And over and over again, I have failed so many times in so many ways because I didn't trust on him. <laughs> and I know most everybody in this room has done the same thing because I see all the smiles in everybody's faces. <laughs> but you know, when we turn to him, we'll be victorious. When we live in a crucified flesh and turn to him, we'll be victorious. But everything is designed to break. Because God wants us not to depend on ourselves. And we like to depend upon ourselves. We're flesh. I'm trying real hard not to raise my hand. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I, it's, it's a wonderful story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and... Then I love this one in verse 26. And hath made of us, made of one blood, all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. You know, this statement is so much power in it. One blood. Too many people have problems with racism and everything. And this verse is so strong and even in the days of the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire, 
racism was a big deal. Now, they didn't have color as their big racism like we do today. They did it with nationalities. You know, and even in Europe to this day, nationalities are where most of their racism occurs. And you know, they would pick things that we would never look. You know, they, know, they know the size of the nose and the shape of the nose means that you're from this, this nation and they, they go after those nations. <laughs> you know, America, we go by color pretty much. Their day was, you know, well, you're, you know, I'm Greek, you're Roman, you're Jew, you're, you're Goth, you're, 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 you're different, you know, and they would go after each other after their nationality. And Paul is saying, we're all one. You know, and this is something important for us as Christians to always remember. We are all Adam and Eve's children. So no matter what, we all have one descendant. And I'll, I go even further. We all have Noah and his wife as descendants as well. So, you know, we all have the same ancestry. You know, and this is why racism is such a stupid thing. When people get, get upset about skin color or nationality, you know, there's a problem there. Because it's not a biblical problem position to think that you're somehow better than anybody else because whatever. <laughs> you, know, you know, if you want to make a distinction, when we're in Christ, then maybe we can say we're better, but we're still fallen flesh as well. <laughs> we're just going to heaven because we're forgiven. You know, we're not anything special in that either. But we get to go to heaven because we're forgiven. We need to be very careful as we deal with other people that we are saying that they're the children of Adam and Eve, that we are all the same. We are all fallen flesh. Now, all of us fall in different places. And I think it's interesting that we look at each other and say, well, you know, well, this person is a murderer, so they're really bad. This person, all they do is ever lie, but they, you know, they never tell the truth, but they're not too bad, <laughs> you know, because uh, they haven't killed anybody. I think it's so important that we understand that God says that sin is sin. Now, the consequences to sin may be different. You know, murder has got a higher consequence than somebody who lies, but the ultimate consequence is, is Hades anyway, is hell anyway, because Jesus says all sin deserves punishment. But as consequences in this world, because, you know, it's interesting, you tell people, Jesus said that if you think something, you've done it. You know, they go, well, I might as well do it. Yeah, well, the consequence is much different. You know, if I'm thinking about killing somebody, it's much different than if I actually kill somebody. You know, there's a big consequence difference in this world. <laughs> now, ultimate consequence is no different. You know, God says you've sinned, you've sinned. <laughs> but for the physical day-to-day -day walking of it, there's a huge difference. <laughs> so we want to be careful with that thought. But ultimately, before God... There's no difference. Because he says the ultimate consequence is without Jesus Christ, death. And this is something that is so important. And Paul is saying we're all one. This is a shock to the Greek mind as well because they are very, very prejudiced. And he's telling that everybody's one. And then he says... And he has determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habita habitation. Paul, 
Paul is telling them this God knows. <laughs> now, again, if you've done any studies in mythologies and everything, or you know, remember any of the stories of mythology, these gods never seem to know what's going to happen in the future. And he's telling them the unknown God knows. He knows the beginning from the end. You know, this is a very interesting thing because Paul is introducing them to somebody that's very different from anything that they have understanding of for a God. Now, for us as Christians, we understand that God knows from the beginning from the end, but do we really truly comprehend that? You know, and I've said this over and over again. The one great thing you're never going to hear God say is he's never going to say, I didn't know that was going to happen. That surprised me. I didn't know it was coming. <laughs> Why? Because he knows the beginning from the end because in his omniscience, he is outside of time and is, he is right now, as we've said over and over again, he is with Adam and Eve right now. He is with us and he's also in the millennial kingdom right now. He is not bound by time. And this is what Paul's saying. He has appointed the times. He knows what's going to happen. Now, we as human beings have a hard thing. You know, how can God know and be in all of time at the same time? Because he's God. He is outside of time. So he encompasses what we consider the fourth dimension, time. And, you know, being a physics person, like, I don't know how many dimensions we're up to now, but if there are many, many, many dimensions, he encompasses all of those as well. If there's multiple universes, as, as, as like, uh, physics is starting to say, then he encompasses all of those as well. How big is God? Well, he is big. <laughs> he is so big that we can't even comprehend how big he is. And he's sitting there, well, I already know, he already knows what I'm going to do tomorrow. Friday about how does free will and God knowing everything that we're going to do work together? <laughs> yeah. Good question. Yeah, that's what we figured it out beyond our understanding. <laughs> the one thing we know is that he says whosoever will will believe and we also know that he does what he wants. Uh, now, we get into that and there's two big camps that are both wrong. <laughs> the Arminians believe that God totally bends his will to our will and that's stupid because then he's not sovereign. You know, and then there's the other, the, the, the hyper-Calvinists that say that he's so sovereign that I have no say in it whatsoever. Okay, uh, well, both of those disagree with the Bible. Now, where we meet in the center, I have no idea. <laughs> I know that God says, whosoever will, <laughs> will come to him. So I know that I have something to say. The Calvinist, and I believe it's probably closer to the Calvinist side because God is sovereign, but it is not so sovereign that I have no say in it. But God can also make sure that we make the decision. Believe me, I have been in over 40, over the, over the 50 years that I've been studying the scriptures, I've been on both sides of the camps, and I understand both sides of the camp, and I'm going, you know, but I will say the greatest news for you when you have two very diametrically opposed camps on a, on a view, the answer is somewhere in the center. Where in the center, I don't know. Uh, I don't know where the, the absolute balance is on that center. All I know is God says whosoever will. 
Now, the Calvinist, because I've asked Calvinists, I go, well, because I tend to be more Calvinistic than not Calvinistic, and I've asked them, well, how, what do you do with the whosoever will verses? And they all have the same answer. They go, it's whosoever that God has chosen. And I will tell them, you can't add your doctrine into the verse. <laughs> and we've got to be careful that we never add our doctrine into verses. Uh, you know, take the verses for what they say. And this is one of those places where it is hard for us to understand because it's like, okay, God, you know, how can both be true? God is bigger than we are. He has, he has no problem with it. Our human brains will not ever understand it unless God lets us. And, you know, and, I, and I've said this over and over. I am glad there's things that I don't fully understand. Because if I fully understood everything that was in the scriptures, then my God's not big enough. If I could fully understand God, he's not big enough because then I put him in what I understand and that would be a scary place. You know, to, to drop God into what I can understand. And I've, believe me, Paul is talking to intellectuals. I've talked to a lot of intellectuals over the years and, and they all want to go, well, I can't believe a God that I don't fully understand. And I'm going, then you don't want to believe in a God. You want, you want to be God. And this is the very important thing. When I find something I don't fully understand, I love to think about it. I love to contemplate it to a degree. But I also will never understand all of it. Do we fully understand how much sin costs this world? We don't even have a clue. When man fell, the enormity of that sin brought death into the world, brought destruction, upset the entire world ecologically and everything else about it was brought down. And you think about that for a while and you start contemplating that and you start learning a little bit about how bad this world is and start looking at how bad we are and we can't even comprehend it. The enormity of sin one of the things I have learned, the more I walk with God, the closer I draw, draw to God, the more I realize how bad sin is. You know, and start really seeing the depth of sin. Because I get along, you know, I get to the place where I go, God, I got it all together finally, and God says, okay, let me show you what sin is really like. <laughs> and he shows another level of sin. Not just the activities, but the thought processes and the, you know, the little things that we do that are sin. The little things that we enjoy that were sin. You know, and I've shared with you so many, there are so many movies, television, books that I can't read anymore because God is showing me how sinful they are and how they promote sin. And some of them are going, God, I used to like that show. I used to like that book. Why, what, are you, what are you doing? And he said, well, you, you wanted to know what sin is. And God says, our heart is deceitfully wicked above all that we can imagine and know. Paul said at the end of his life, I'm the chiefest of sinners. And he, you know, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. As far as we looked at him, people would have looked at him and said, you're a pretty good guy, for, you know, Paul. And I think he was being realized all the little thoughts that he had that were sin. And I think the closer we draw to God, the more we see his righteousness, the more we see how evil we are in our flesh. Now, the good news is that we're in Christ, and God doesn't see that. But he lets us see who we are without Christ. Not to condemn us, but to 
convict us to make ourselves closer to him and draw closer to him. And then we get that little area out of our life and we draw closer to him and he says, okay, now look at this, this other area of your life. And he turns the light on just a little bit brighter and a little bit brighter. And all of a sudden, we start really seeing who we are without him. And praise God that in him we are perfect. <laughs> and I love the fact that God sees us as we will be. Not as we are, but what we will be because he already knows us. Now, he already knows us and he deals with us in our glorified being, not in our sanctif sanctification being. You know, now he keeps allowing us to learn, but Paul is telling them, we've got the God that is one nation who knows all these things. And then I love their And they that seek the Lord, if happily they might feel after him, that they would find him, though he be not far from everyone. And I think this is interesting, the idea of seeking God. Does anybody remember when you were first seeking God and he, you, know, you felt that he was so far away and you started reaching out for him before you got saved? And Paul is saying, you're, you're searching for him. And he's saying, you, you, you people, you're searching for God. You're out there feeling around, where is God? And because he said, you, you know, you're, you've got altars for all these gods, you're trying to find, you're trying to find God. Most people, even those who say there is no truth, are looking for truth. Because the one thing you really learn is that you can't live in a world without truth. Even though if you want to try to believe there's no truth, you can't really live in a world without truth. You have to have something to put your life on. And the world over and over will say there is no truth, there is no, there is no absolute truth, there is no, there is no right or wrong, and what I feel is right is right. And what they're trying to say is, I have to have truth. Yeah, but they don't know where the basis of truth is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And what did Pilate say to Jesus? He goes, what is truth? Because the Greeks were always looking for truth. What is truth? And every time they thought they found it, they found out that they didn't know what truth was. And Paul is here telling them, you're looking for him, but he's not far away. He's not far away. When you're following an idol that you're trying to please, and you're trying to hope that you've done enough, you know, it is very interesting when you witness to people and you say, well, I, you know, where will you go when you die? Well, I hope <laughs> that I've done enough good. Uh, and these will be from religious people usually. They hope I've done enough good to please God. You know, if you ask people, well, how much good is enough? I don't know. Uh, well, is every good thing equal to every bad thing? I don't know. Are some good things better than other good things? Are some bad things worse than other bad things? What a way to have to live, wondering if you've done enough good things. And just before you die, you did one big sin that, that wiped out everything. And then you died before you could make it up. And you go before him and he puts everything on a scale and says, sorry, too bad. You shouldn't have had that last thought before you died. You know, I am so happy that we 
are dependent upon Jesus Christ <laughs> and his sacrifice. And that the only thing that matters to the Father is what have you done with the Son? When they stand before him at the white throne judgment, and we as Christians won't stand at the white throne judgment because we're forgiven. One question at the white throne judgment, what have you done with the Son? And at the white throne judgment, they're all guilty. They've rejected Jesus. They will stand before the throne of God clothed in their own righteousness, which Isaiah says is filthy rags. And I can just picture everybody going up and saying, God, just look at all the good things I've done as they look down <laughs> and see the filthy rags that they're clothed in and all of a sudden it will dawn on them. All the good that I have done or not done, but it, you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They're, they're clothed in their, their, their own filthy rags and all of a sudden it dawns on them that all the good that they were depending on to get into heaven is not good enough. They've appeared before the, the ultimate judge of the universe in rags. And even in our justice system, the first thing they do to prisoners if they want them to have a good impression, they clothe them in nice clothes. <laughs> they don't let them show up in what they would run around in their, their gang garbs and their, you know, whatever else. They, they dress them up and make them look respectable. And people are going to think that when I appear before God, I can show him all the good things that I have done. I am going to dress up in my fine good, good deeds and God's going to look down and say, all I see is a bunch of filthy rags. And they're going to be rejected because the only garment that gets you into heaven is Jesus Christ's righteousness. And here Paul's telling them, you know, that God's there. And in verse 28 says, For in him we live and move and have our breath, as certain also of our poets have said, for we are all his offspring. Now Paul, oftentimes, Paul's knowledge was, was great. He wasn't just a knowledgeable Jew. Because this poet that he's, that he's quoting is a Greek poet. <laughs> he's not quoting from them. He's saying we are children of God. We are his offspring. Going back to Adam and Eve, God created one. Now, they had a picture of demigods and all these other things as being their offspring. But Paul is taking what they say and advancing it to say, well, you already believe that, we already believe that you can be children of God. I'm going to tell you that you are. But not quite the way they mean. <laughs> yeah, he's going to change it just a little bit. And one of the things when we witness to people is you can use what they believe sometimes to, to help them understand. You know, Paul is building bridges here to the people. They have a different mentality. They believe in many gods. They believe in doing, doing the things to please their gods. And Paul is trying to build a bridge to them. He's trying to first off tell them who God is. The God who knows all things, controls all things, created all things, and changed the way they think. And he says, we are his. We would say that he's sovereign. He's the God of the everything. He is the king of everything, master of everything. 
and I love that God is in control. And again, we go back to this. Where, where is God in full control? You know, but it does say that he controls the governments. He controls everything. And this is the amazing thing. You know, when we look at our world around us and go, God, why would you let these things happen? Well, because fallen man has sinned and God says there's judgment for sin. You know, and we've said this, you know, in our nation, our nation deserves most everything that happened because the church for years did not get involved and let things fall apart. You know, for many, many decades, the church has just let things happen. And now the church is trying to say, well, how did we get here? Well, we stopped teaching God's word. We stopped evangelizing. We, start, we stopped uh, preaching uh, that God's word was accurate and correct. All this started way back in the 1800s when the church was trying to figure out how to mix evolution with the Bible and take the science of, the, of evolution and make it match. And then from there, we've gone downhill over and over and over, and we've let the authority of the scriptures dwindle. And now all of a sudden, we're at a place where we'd like the authority of the scriptures to be brought back, and yet we don't know how to do it because the world has gone so far downhill. And it is hard. And now judgment is getting ready to fall. I hope that there's going to be a revival. I don't put a lot of hope in it, but I, love, I hope there's going to be a great revival. But I also see all the pieces being placed in, in the revelation and the end days and one world government and all these things being put in place. Can God still do a great revival? Absolutely. Will he? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a prophet. I'm not going to put it that way. I would love to see it, but I see so many of the pieces put in place that I'm going, okay, God, I'm ready for the rapture. I'm ready to go home. But I also want to see more people get saved. Sure. I want to see many people get saved because we are so close to the end days. We see all the pieces. When we look at the book of Revelation, we see all the pieces. When we look at Daniel, we see all the pieces. We look at all these books of, um, and prophecies of the end times, we see all the pieces together. And it's a beautiful picture, but it's also kind of scary because it's like, okay, God, how many, of my how many of my family aren't saved yet? How many of my friends aren't saved yet? How many of my coworkers aren't saved yet? And the rapture can happen any moment. There's nothing holding back God from taking us out and letting the, end, the tribulation start. We need to get serious about God, serious about witnessing to people. And... He says, verse 29, For as much then as we are the offsprings of God, we ought to think, not to think that the Godhead is likened to gold, silver, or stone, graven by art, or man's devices, or thoughts. Okay? This is the danger even for us Christians. Too often, we might not actually try to picture him, but this word for devices, our thoughts, our, our thinking. How many times do we box God into some, some direction? You know, God, this is the way you do things. <laughs> you know, I have kind of learned over the years that I don't want to tell God how to do anything because he never does it my way. <laughs> he always does something different. And we've talked about this. How many times we go to prayer and go, God, you know, I really need this, and I think maybe this would be a good way for you to do it. I haven't had God take my advice on anything. You know, I, he's never hired me for a counselor, and I don't think I've ever met a person that he has hired that, for to be his counselor. Not even Solomon, who was the wisest man in the, wor in the world, was God's counselor. God does not need a counselor. Too many times we try to be his counselor, 
and tried to advise him. But you know, we would be much better off to really realize that we are his bond slaves, his servants. We are to do things his way. I love that the apostles, all the place, you know, all of them said, we are his slave. And if you read it in the Greek, it is his bond slave. I have chosen to serve him. And that means he gets to tell us what to do. We don't get to tell him what to do. The, you know, sometimes uh, employees try to tell the bosses what, what they're going to do. They don't last very long usually. But a slave never got to tell the, the, the master, uh, you know what, master, I'm not going to go plow that field today. <laughs> uh, I am not going to do that job today. That is not what the slave does. <laughs> the slave does what they're told. And I can tell you so many times that God has told me to do the strangest, dumbest things in my mind. <laughs> and I haven't always been obedient, but when I had been obedient, I found out it's exactly what I was supposed to have done. <laughs> and God has done something marvelous from it. And we don't know all of what he's doing because he is so much. And he says, and I love this, he says, the Godhead, don't think of the Godhead as silver, gold, anything that you had made or by our devices, our thoughts. You know, and devices is our big one as Christians because we like to picture God somehow. <laughs> you know, uh, our world pictures God as the God of love. You know, God is so loving. But the only problem is they don't even understand what love is. <laughs> you know, when, when the world tells us that God is love, they mean, well, He's going to love me no matter what I do, and there won't be any discipline. And I love that answer because you know what I'm going, especially if they have kids. I'm going, okay, you love your kids, right? Uh-huh. So you love your kids so much that if they wanted to run out to the highway and play out in the traffic with that car, you're just going to let them do it, right? And they go, no, of course I wouldn't do that. I'm going, God doesn't do it to us either. God will discipline us when we need it. He will stop us from doing things that are going to hurt us. Because he is love. His love is going to do that. Now, his love will also, when we do get hurt, pick us up, give us the hug, and, and help us get back in place again. But his love is also going to try to say, don't do that. Don't go out and play in the traffic. Don't stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon where the gravel is and it's sloped downhill and be surprised when you fall in. You know, this is... God's love saying, no, stay away from these things. Don't go that way. And he's saying, don't go this way. And verse 30 says, and at times of this ignorant, God winked at, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And this is kind of an interesting, his wink, he overlooked it. You know, how many times in our own lives when we first get saved has God overlooked some of the things that we've done wrong because we didn't know any better? And the problem is the more we get to know about God, the more we're accountable for what we know. And, you know, then I've had people go, well, I just won't learn anything about God then. I have this sneaky feeling that if you were supposed to have gone to a service or something and, and didn't, you're responsible for what you should have known. You know, because God is not going to let you get away with not knowing. But you know, it's interesting that God will teach you even if you don't go to Bible study, even if you don't get into God, God's going to teach it to you somehow, some way. He's going to put somebody in your way, in, in your path that's going to teach you. 
even though you didn't want to know. <laughs> I, I have fun when I'm witnessing and sharing with people because I share them some things and they'll look at me and like, what? You know, what do you mean that you can't do enough good? I, I was witnessing, not even officially witnessing, I was just talking to somebody, sharing with them that you can't do enough good to please God. And even when you think you've done some things good, it's not good enough to please God anyway. <laughs> you know, and you share with them. We teach them. We make them accountable. And it's the spirit that makes you accountable. How many times have maybe you've been talking to another Christian and you just share what you learned in a Bible study? I love that we share with other people. My goal is when we get together that we start sharing what we learn from, other, from the Bible studies and the things we've been studying. I grew up in a, in a church where Bible studies happened all the time. I would love to see the place where we get together and we talk about God and we have a Bible study. We talk about what God has shown us and taught us. You know, uh, if you read, know anything about the, the churches that grew up during the Jesus movement in the, in the 70s and 80s, everything was about God. You had Bible studies everywhere. Schools had Bible studies. You had Bible studies when you got together. Everything was about God and Bible study. That is what revival does. It brings out people saying, I want you to, you know, I just want to tell you what God showed me. Let me, let me tell you about what God just taught me. I look forward to the day that our church is so strong in that that people are always talking about, I just want to show you what God, you know, this is what God showed me yesterday. This is what God showed me when I was reading the Bible. And we're getting there. We're starting to get there. I'm hearing those comments where people are sharing what God said. We get together, we're two or three together, and God gets talked about. Paul is saying, God has one goal, and that is that men everywhere will repent. Turn away from their sins. Not just ask for forgiveness, but truly repent. That was the message of John the Baptist. Repent. <laughs> You know, recognize your sin, turn away from it and turn to God and agree that you're not going to do it anymore. Because just telling God I'm sorry is not repentance. It's the first step of repentance. But it's not repentance because if I tell God I'm sorry and I go right back out and I do the same thing again, I have not repented. And this is the important thing about it is God is wanting Repentance. God, I am sorry that I have hurt you and I want to, with your help, not do it again. And not do it again and not do it again. Now God recognizes the fact that we're probably going to do it again. But my goal is to say, God, I, this is repugnant to me as well as to you. That is where repentance really kicks in. God, I am sorry that I've done this and I'm turning to you. And repentance is basically a U-turn. I'm going one way. I'm now going to turn and go back to God. And God says, and Paul is saying, God is asking for repentance. Because, in verse 31, he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, which he hath given assurance to all men that he hath raised him up from the dead. He is going to judge the world in righteousness by what standard? Perfection. This is the hard thing for mankind to get in the, into our heads because we want to be God. We want to raise ourselves up and say, 
I, I, I managed to pull myself up. And part of America's problem is we like to pull our own self up by our bootstraps, by our, by our own consideration. You know, I did it. I did it. I didn't need anything. And God's saying, I want you to recognize that you need me. This is a hard thing for human beings and our pride to give up. You know, even as Christians, sometimes we forget that it's all by Jesus Christ, especially if we've walked with him for a long time and we start thinking, yeah, hey, God, you're so lucky you have me. You know, I, I, I've come so far, God, you are just so lucky you have me on your side. I, I, don't, I don't smoke, drink, and whatever other sins we want to list in our, and we kind of forget the things that we are doing when we're telling God about all the good things we're doing. And we lift up ourselves. And God is saying, the righteousness by that man who God hath ordained, and who is that? The one that is resurrected, Jesus Christ. God is going to pick, place everybody beside the righteousness of Christ, his righteousness, and say, are you perfect? And one defect is all it takes to be not correct in God's sight. And, I, and I've shared with you all, the, the time I went shopping with one of my friends, he was an artist, we went to the art store to buy some canvas. They had about 100 canvases on them. They all looked good to me. And he went through all 100 of them and found two canvases that he said was almost perfect. And he's going, this one had a dent, this one had a mark, this one had a mark. This, you know, he's going through, and he finally asked the guy, he goes, do you have any more canvases that are correct? And I go, no, these are all of them. And so he bought two that was the best in the store. I'm looking at them. They look pretty good to me. <laughs> but his eye was different than my eye. God's eye with us is that type of thing. He looks at us and says, nope, there's a speck right there. You had, you know, and none of us are even close to being that close to perfect, but he's going, there's your, there's your imperfections. There's all your imperfections. The only thing that will please him is the righteousness of Christ. And when we turn to him and we confess our sins and we admit that we are a sinner in need of Christ, he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And then from that point on, he looks at us and says, this is my perfect child. My perfect child. And we need to be very careful that we don't judge one another and each other and say, God, you know, that, that child over there has got a lot of problems. And God's going to say, you're judging my child? You're judging my perfect child? <laughs> and he kind of might kind of remind us that we have our own problems. <laughs> you know. It's, a, it's amazing, though, that what we see in other people is always what we have problems with. You know, we look at others and go, God, they're, 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 they're worse than I am. And God's going, uh, I, don't, I don't comparison shop. God's got one standard. And the more we learn to see each other after that one standard, the better off we're going to be with each other. Imagine if we could start teaching teaching and treating everybody in the body of Christ the way God sees us. Or even better, the way we want to be treated. If we start treating everybody the way we want to be treated, the way God sees people, what difference would that have in the church of Christ? How would the church be changed if we truly started treating one another the way God sees us? 
<laughs> well, the whole world. But, but if we could start with the body of Christ. But I agree with you. When I'm dealing with the world, I can't treat them as if they're really awful, terrible, because they are, but I know they are. But we're all one. We're all the same. You know, and I've said this. This is one of my favorite statements. I am not surprised when sinners sin. It doesn't surprise me at all because I'm a sinner and I sin all the time. Now, as I've said, it bothers me more when Christians sin because they should know better. But it still doesn't surprise me when we sin. Because I sin, we have a sin nature, and as much as I want it crucified, and as much as I want to say that I live in the crucified crucifixion of the flesh, I still sin. But you know, if I'm not surprised, then I can deal with people better. And you know, when the lost world sins, that's who they are. Matter of fact, I like it when the lost world sins because it's easier to evangelize them. <laughs> it's really hard to take a righteous person who thinks they haven't sinned and try to evangelize them. Because you have to get them to admit that they're a sinner. And that is not an easy thing sometimes. I like dealing with people who aren't religious because they know that they're a sinner. They know that they've done wrong things. And when you tell them that all have sinned, they say, yep, I understand, yep, you're, I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. And then we can give them the good news. But you tell a righteous person, you know, all have sinned, oh, not me, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. We have to be very careful as Christians that we don't try to get to be a righteous person in that, in that sense. Our righteousness is in Christ. I have no righteousness of my own that God's going to respect and look at and say, oh, how wonderful you are, <laughs> because we don't have it. We are sinners. And I'm going to just take these last three verses because I'm a pastor and we're going to go over them anyway. <laughs> I want to finish the chapter. And when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, <laughs> some mocked and others said, we will hear you again in this manner. So Paul departed from among them. Howbeit certain men claved to him and believed among which were Dionysius, the Aerogite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. Paul talked about the resurrection, and he was mocked. You know, uh, this is still true for us. You talk about the resurrected Christ, you talk about God being the power, and people mock. Because it's, it's something that doesn't make sense to the human mind. Once you're dead, you're dead. <laughs> you know, and we, we kind of know that's true. Once, once our body's dead, the body is dead. But our spirit continues. And there will be a resurrection of our bodies. In the end days, there will be a resurrection of our body, and we will get a new body. Hopefully not this ugly thing that I'm in, but we'll get a new body. <laughs> And Paul talked about it, and some of them mocked. They derided him. They jeered him. You know, okay, Paul, you've gone way too far with that statement. We were kind of with you that there may be a God that's the God that created everything, the God that has rules. But this idea that a God that resurrected, you know, okay, Paul, you've, you've lost us. But it said some believed. And there were others that said, we want to hear more about this. All right? Uh, so we had three different camps. Some that said, okay, you're a fool. 
Some that said, well, well, I'm interested. We want to hear more. And then there were some, and I, the word clave is we're glued to. They fully believed what he said, and they're going, we're now, we're now disciples. And he names three of the, uh, two of them, and then there were others. There were others. And remember, his audience was a hard audience. He was dealing with people who were wise, who thought they were intelligent, and he's given them something new to think about. And three answers, which is the same three answers we get in today's world. You're an absolute fool for believing what you believe. There's no way that I'm going to believe that. Some of the almost you make me believe, but I want to hear more. And then some who believe. We need to make sure that when we're witnessing to people, don't waste a lot of the time with the people that are jeering you and thinking you're a fool. Go find other people. You know, uh, I don't want to waste a lot of time. There's so many people out there that need to hear the gospel message. I don't need to sit there and try to argue with people who aren't going to listen. I will spend minimal time with those who, are, who want to hear more. But you know, there has to be a point where you've heard the truth so many times that you have to make a decision. You know, and they tell us, you know, I don't know who's done the study and how they figured it out, you have to hear the gospel five times or so before you re respond, and it's probably true. You know, and the thing about it is every time I talk to somebody and they go, it's the first time I heard, you know, I finally heard the gospel. And especially if it's somebody that I would witness to. It's like, oh, and the other five times didn't count, the other three times didn't count. But you know, I think it is also true, it was the first time they heard. And I, when I say heard, the brain actually registered the gospel message. Their ears heard, <laughs> but they didn't necessarily hear. And yeah, they went in one ear and out the other ear and didn't stop in between. <laughs> and then there's that time when it finally stops in between and they hear and they get convicted. We need to just share the gospel and keep it simple. Don't try to argue somebody into, into the kingdom. Answer their questions. Answer their questions, but don't sit there and try to argue with them because if you try to argue them into the kingdom, somebody else will just argue them out of the kingdom. <laughs> And, you know, just answer, let the simplicity of the gospel witness to them. And the gospel is so simple. We are all sinners. We deserve, we deserve hell. We can't pay the price. Jesus paid that price. <laughs> now, obviously, we give them a little bit more than that simplicity. But the gospel is simple. A child can understand it. The child can give it. The simplicity of the gospel is all we deal with. And when we witness to people, keep it simple. Don't try to argue with them. Don't try, just give them facts. Answer their questions. Now, I love to answer questions. You all know I love to answer questions. <laughs> you know, and I love to answer questions and enjoy it. I love science. I love all that stuff. So when people start talking about creation and evolution and, and all these things, I love that topic. I love to give them the answers why evolution is wrong <laughs> and why evolution can't be, is, is unscientific. But you know, nobody's going to be coming to Christ just because we prove that they're wrong. We have to get them to understand that they are a sinner in need of God. And once they get there, then we can start answering all their other questions and bring them back to the Bible and bring everything back to the scriptures because that's where the truth is. And Paul 
drawing people in, teaching them that they are a sinner in need of the God, the one and only God. And we're going to end there. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to guide and show us. Lord, as we go about our walk this week, give us people to witness to and to share the gospel with and and see people get saved. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431.